Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. And in chapters 1 to 7, we see God using Nehemiah to restore the walls. And now from chapters 8 to 13, we see God using Nehemiah, and we see God restoring the people's hearts. And that's where we're in this morning. Last week in Nehemiah chapter 8, we had Sheetal preach about the Word of God. They read the Word of God. They explained the Word of God. And they were cut to the heart. And they began to weep. And as they began to weep, Nehemiah said, no, this is a joyful occasion. And they celebrated a feast and they began to be joyful. But now, after they've celebrated what they called the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a reminder of how God led them in the desert and how God provided for them in the desert. But it also was a feast coinciding with with the harvest that they would be saying, thank you, God, for the provision of the previous year. They've just had this massive feast, but still they're weeping. And we pick it up in uh, in Nehemiah chapter 9. They're weeping. Why are they weeping? They're weeping because they're cut to the heart. As they've read God's word, they've been cut to the heart and they realize they have fallen far from his glory. They realize they have rebelled against them, them and their fathers. They realize that their exile and their slavery now is oppression of their own making because they rebelled against God. And they're cut to the heart and they come to God. And this passage is a beautiful passage, one of the longest recorded uh, prayers in Scripture of God's people coming to Him in confession, coming to Him in repentance, coming to Him in worship. What happens, they gather together and for six hours they read the Word. And then for another six hours they worship and they confess their sins and they repent and they turn to God. This isn't a quick 30-minute sermon and a quick uh, prayer at the end uh, with maybe a gospel message in it. This is six hours devotion to God's word, six hours devotion to confession and repentance. Repentance is not a nice word. Guilt is not a nice word. In actual fact, modern day man has tried to remove guilt all completely because if you can remove guilt, then you won't feel bad about what you're doing. And you can excuse the way you're living. But God steps in and he says, actually, there is a price that needs to be paid for guilt. There is a price that needs to be paid for shame. Your sins have separated you from me. And how these people are, they realize their sins have separated them from God. And they return. What is repentance? This is just a sidebar because we're, gonna, we're not going to focus on repentance this morning. But repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And if you speak Greek and speak more than I do, you realize that i horribly mispronounced that. But basically what it means, it means to turn, to change. So if I'm going in this way, it means I have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of purpose, a change of direction. I'm no longer running in the same direction. That's why they say turn to the Lord. And that's actually one of the verbs in chapter nine that we hear a lot of. Turn to God, but they would not turn to the Lord. And here we have God's people turning to God in prayer and confession. It reminds me of the early church where in Acts chapter 2, what's happened is Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been raised to life, he's ascended into heaven, and he has prayed for his disciples, and he has poured out his Holy Spirit 40 days later, and what happens at Pentecost is this, is the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up because there's a crowd gathering, and they're saying, what's going on? What's going on here? This is strange. We've never seen this before. And Peter gets up, and he preaches the first recorded gospel message in the early church. And this is what they say in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies, repent, turn to God. And this is what happens here with these people. They've heard God's word. They are cut to the hearts. And what do they do? They repent and turn to him. I don't know where you're at right now in your relationship with God. But God is wanting all of us 
to turn to him this morning. Sin is when we turn from God. We like to categorize sins and say this is a big sin, this is a small sin, but pretty much this is what happens. When we're following God, we're not in sin. But the moment we choose to not follow God with what he has said, we turn from him and we sin. And God is saying this morning, turn back to me. I'm a gracious and compassionate God. That's already come through this morning, right? In the words, God is gracious and compassionate. I'm preaching on that this morning. God is faithful to keep his promises. We've already heard this morning. That's one of my points this morning. I believe God is wanting to remind us of his goodness this morning, of his grace and of his mercy. Perhaps for some of us, too, too much of us have, have heard a negative view of God, that God is angry with us and God wants to take us out and God is so mad with us that he just can't wait to destroy us. And I feel to tell you this morning that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. His mercy is here and his grace is here. And he wants to meet with us even more. Before we get into this confession and go through some scriptural lines and, and work out what they were praying and how we can apply it to our lives, there's three key things that we need to take out of this passage of scripture. And the first thing that we need to take out is their approach to God. Contrasting through this whole chapter of chapter nine is we've got the approach of this group of people to God and the approach of their forefathers. You could say the state of their heart before God and the state of their fathers and ancestors' heart before God. They come to God humbly, realizing that they have wronged God, that they have failed Him, that they are in sin, and they repent. And that is directly contrasted with their forefathers who rejected God, who were arrogant, who were filled with pride. Let's see how they were filled with pride. Nehemiah 9 verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. What is arrogance? Arrogance is when we exaggerate our self-worth or importance. So when it came to God, the creator of all that there is, the one who had done all these miracles for them, suddenly in their hearts they began to think, I'm more important than you say I am, God, and I'm more important than I think you think I am. That said, God thinks we are so amazing and so important that he, he calls us the crown of his creation. But when pride enters our heart, we look at God and we say, I know better. And this is what these people did. But we've never done that, hey? Not us today. They were arrogant and stiff-necked. What is stiff-necked? Well, stiff-necked speaks about an animal that is plowing or an animal that is used in agriculture. And a stiff-necked animal is one that won't follow where it's being led. It's an unteachable animal, an unbreakable animal, an animal that is useless because it won't go where the farmer needs it to go. And like these people, they're stiff-necked, but God wanted them to go where God wanted to lead them. They were unteachable, unrepentant, and they wanted to go their own way. Pride. Nehemiah 9 verse 17, and we're just going to go through a few more examples. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you, you performed. They refused to listen. How many times has God said something to us and we're like, hey God, I love you, I serve you, I worship you, but that is just too much. God speaks and he wants us to obey. Why? Not because he wants to tell us what to do, but he could, because he knows what is best for us. He is the perfect father. The one who gives every good and perfect gift that comes from his right hand. He says, obey me because I want to satisfy your souls. This is amazing. They fail to remember the miracles you performed. Now, when we forget what God has done in our lives, it's very easy for us to think that we did it. That the successes that we may have had in this life are of our own making. And the more we come, become intoxicated with thoughts of self-worth and self-exaltation and ah, I'm actually pretty awesome. You are. 
we can lose sight of what God has actually done. And when we lose sight of what God has done, we forget what he has done. And easily pride seeps into our hearts and we begin to forget God. Verse 26 says, they rebelled, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Disobedience is an active choice not to do what God has said. Rebellion and putting your law behind their backs is an active turning away from God. And this is contrasted with this people broken, weeping, mourning before God because they have broken his commands. Friends, when we are humble, we represent Jesus. And here's the truth. When we are proud, we represent the devil. That's harsh this morning, but it's the truth. See, Jesus is revealed to us as humble through the word and also through experience. This is who Jesus is. The God of all creation, the very God who breathed the stars to be and called them each by name. He chose a stable over a king's palace to be born. He chose a poor woman to carry and nurse him. He chose the upbringing of a carpenter's son rather than the courts of earthly kings. He chose to lay aside his majesty and power and walk this earth in human likeness, taking on our frail frame, walking in our skin. He chose to die naked on a cross for those who hated him. That's you and that's me. The most humiliating and cruel death known to man. And he took that for us. And then he chose to display his wisdom and glory through his church. His people who were imperfect and would get it wrong. Jesus is humble and he asks us to be the same. The contrast is the devil. The devil, his pride is what made him want to be like God and become God. His pride is what got him kicked out of heaven. And friends, right now, his pride is what makes him hate you and I because we are image bearers of God. And every time he sees us, he is reminded of what he can never become, of what he tried to become and what he failed to become. The offspring of God, made in his image. Our approach this morning matters. Our approach to worship, our approach to the word of God, our approach to walking out this walk with God. God is speaking to us this morning and he's saying, come to me. Come to me. You can turn to me. The second theme that's repeated throughout this chapter is this. God is always good. He's always good, despite his people. I love this. It's not comfortable preaching this. If there was only one thing we could take from this account in Scripture, one thing that is evident through the soul is that God is always good. He is always gracious. He is always kind. He is always merciful, despite his people. Over and over, we are going to see how God's people rebelled and disobeyed, how they were unfaithful and turned their backs on him, rejected him, and time and time again, we're going to read that God was good to them in, in, in spite of what they had done. That's not us, right? We just love God. We never get it wrong. We never fail him. We never disobey him. We never rebel against him. We never turn our backs on him. We never reject him. And every time that I do, God is right there saying, I love you. My grace and my mercy and my compassion are for you. A thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. Let's look how they turned, and look, let's look how God was forgiving. But you are a forgiving God, 9 verse 17, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them in the desert. You should have, and you, prob- and you could have, and you probably should have, and if it was me, I would have. But God, you didn't, because you are slow to anger, compassionate, and gracious. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. When I was at my lowest, when I was so far from it, God, you, you chose not to abandon me, even though I had abandoned you. And how's this in 28? They said, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You may be here this morning, you think God's run out of chances for me. <laughs> it's like a cat's got nine lives. I'm worse than a cat. I've done this like 2,500 times. God is going to turn me away now. Surely today is the last day, my last chance perhaps. 
while there is breath in your lungs, while there is hope in your chest, while there is blood beating through, running through your veins, while there's a heart beating in your chest, should I say, there is mercy, there is grace, and there is hope for you. Turn to the living, gracious, and compassionate God. I want to move on. He is gracious and merciful. Let's just look quickly at what grace is. Grace is when God gives us everything we don't deserve. Right here, right now, if you experienced his presence this morning, if you experienced his love, his kindness, his compassion, that is all some of the things that you don't deserve and neither do I deserve, but God chose to give it to us through faith in Christ Jesus. When he died on the cross, he gave us access to the Father, the perfect love that we could be reunited with God in relationship. We were estranged, we were far, we were separated, but he chose to make us right with him. That is called grace, where God gives us everything we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is when God chooses not to give us everything we do deserve. I don't know about you, but I know what I deserve. I don't deserve freedom. I don't deserve this amazing life that I get to walk with him every day. I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve the good things God has done for me. I don't deserve to breathe. I don't deserve to have this heart beating in my chest because I have sinned and I have fallen short of the glory of God. And I don't need to tell you my sins to know that you feel the same if you understand who God is and how we as man have fallen from him. I'm not highlighting sin this morning. I'm highlighting a gracious and compassionate God that despite our failings, despite our bad choices, despite our sin is saying, come home. I love you and I am for you. I'm so glad that God chose not to give me everything I deserve. I would not be here. Thirdly, I'd like to, well, the third thing, is this, is that they remembered who God is and what God has done. This is a pattern repeated in this. We've heard how the ancestors forgot the miracles God had performed, but here they are humbly before God. Here they are remembering who he is and what he's done. And I'd like to spend a bit more time on this point this morning. We've already mentioned that in their pride, their forefathers had forgotten the miracles God had done on their behalf. And in their arrogance and disobedience had forgotten all he had done for them, turning their backs on him. But now we see this people humbly coming before God and determining not to repeat the same mistakes. They now remember God in every point of their prayer, and every point of their prayer is specific to their history and belief in God. They have determined in their prayer to remember who their God is and what their God has done. Just a bit about where these people are at. They may have just come out of exile, which is good news. They may have just rebuilt the wall in 52 days, which is amazing. Incredible. What a miracle. But in actual fact, they're still slaves. They're subjects of a foreign king. They may be in their own land, but they pay a heavy tax. History tells us that they were taxed 20% of everything. They were heavy and all, heavily taxed, and all that they were producing was going to other people. And they're crying out to God at the end of this in verse 36 and 37. They say, we are slaves. We're in distress, God. Things are looking a bit better than they were, but they're still not in the greatest place. And this is why. In their distress, in their hardships, in their hope for a better tomorrow, they are saying, we will remember who our God is, and we will remember what he has done. This is important. When we remember who our God is, we take the view off of ourselves, and we get heaven's perspective. When we get caught up in what is going on around us, caught up in our own problems, we can easily lose sight of God and make idols and mountains out of the molehills that perhaps we're going through. Or maybe it's a massive mountain we're going through, but when we lose sight of God, it becomes bigger and bigger. But when we remember who he is, we get his perspective. We renew our minds and enable ourselves to get God's thoughts on where we are at and what we are going through. 
we cannot approach our circumstances the same because when we remember who our God is, we remember who is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Do we believe that this morning? If God is for you, who can be against you? The promises he has over your life, if he is for you and he has promised those things, who can stand against? I believe some promises are coming back to life. We cannot approach our circumstances the same because when we remember what God has done, we remember that he is faithful and he never changes. And the same God who saved us yesterday is the same God who will continue to save us now and in the future. Take a moment and begin to remember what amazing things God has done for you. We have an amazing story of how we got to America. We've been here 11 months now in the amazing journey of a nine-month Faith, journey, wild, adventure, incredible, painful, hard, horrible, beautiful, all these things, I don't even know how to say it. The journey we were on, but here we are, and God did it. God brought us here. But I can so easily be caught up in today and forget the miracles that God has done. In actual fact, it happened. I realized two months in, it was amazing. We're living in the promised land, the best city in the world, Chicago. God has done an amazing work. Wow, it's amazing. And all of a sudden, I wake up and I start worrying about temporary things. I start worrying about all this craziest of little things and it's really getting me down until I realized, whoa, I've forgotten what God has just done. So I began to remember the steps that God took us on the journey, the things that God had said. And by the end of it, I wasn't worrying about those things anymore because I knew that God wanted me to live today with the same faith that it took to get us here. Where do you want to live? What faith expression do you want to have? God says, remember who I am and remember what I have done. Now, I'd like to take five quick things of how they remembered who God is and, and how they remembered what God had done. And we're going to read in verse 5. Nehemiah 9, verse 5. And we're going to go through this confession and jump around a little bit. Hey, here we go. It says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Who is this God that they confess to, that they worship to, that they listen to his word? He is the Lord who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The starting point of their confession and prayer, and may I say this is a great starting point for us as well, is to remember that God is not limited by the earthly experience, by the things of this earth like time, space, all these things that limit us, God is unlimited by because he dwells beyond time and space. And by remembering that their God is eternal, They remember that they may be slaves and in distress, but God is not confined to their difficulties and experiences. As one who is above and beyond and before all things, he is powerful to save. What are you going through right now? Is your perspective eternal and heavenly because you are seeing the Lord who is eternal, or is it temporary and based out of what's happening right in front of you? God says this morning, lift your eyes and remember that I am eternal. This is what these people did. The next thing. Read on. Let's read on. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Not only is the Lord eternal, but the Lord is also the creator, the creator of all that there is. Incidentally, one of the greatest attacks these days on creation, I believe, is because when you remove a creator from the situation, you remove a creator from creating this world, then I don't belong to anybody anymore. I can be my own person. I can live my own life the way I want to live it because I don't have to be accountable to anyone. The moment you say there is a creator, I have to point everything in my life back to that creator and say, whoever you are, I belong to you. Do you belong to the king of creation this morning? 
Or do you belong to yourself? God is saying, I created you for a plan and for a purpose. When you turn to me, I will breathe my life into you and you'll begin to live for the very way and place and and reason that I created you. It's like a car, a Ferrari trying to drive on train tracks. It's just not going anywhere. It's just not going anywhere. And you know the potential inside and you know there's something missing. But you take that Ferrari and put it on a racetrack and watch it fly. You take that train and and take it off of the ground and put it on the train tracks and watch it fly. What is it? It's when we are designed and we're placed in the right place to do what we're designed for. That's what God is saying. Come home to me and I'll position you and place you in my plan and purpose and you will fly. The Lord is creator. They may be down and almost out. They may be at the bottom and still in slavery, but they know that their God was the Lord of all creation. They knew that the same God would bring order out of the chaos of their exile. They knew that the same God would make something out of their nothing they now had. They knew that it was God who gave them life, and therefore it was God who would save them and sustain them with the same power evidence at creation. Whatever you're going through right now, God is powerful to save, not only powerful to save you, but to sustain you. He's reaching down this morning saying, I want to save and I want to sustain Today, let us remember who our God is. He is the creator of all that there is. By his word, everything is, and by that same word, everything that is, is sustained. Our God is powerful to save. Let's read on. The next point, point number three. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and made a covenant with him. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Someone gets up this morning and already says, I want you to know that God is faithful to keep his promises. Do you remember that? Point number three, the way they remembered who God is and what he has done, they remembered that the Lord always keeps his promises. If God has said it, he will do it because God's promises don't rely on my current experience and circumstances and limitations. God's promises rely on what he has said and he has promised that everything that he has said will not return to him void. We need to stop limiting the the actualization of what God has called us to by our experiences and look to him because he is saying, if I've said it, I will fulfill it. If I've promised it, it will come true. Abraham was central to the Jewish story. He was the first Jew, the one God chose to be the father of the Jewish nation. His story was the genesis of their relationship with God and central to Abraham's story was God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to fulfill all that he had promised. Not only was Abraham then a picture of God faithfully fulfilling his promises, Abraham was a portrait of patience and believing God, even when everything looked like God wasn't going to come through. Why do they remember Abraham and what God did for Abraham? Why do they remember the promise over Abraham? Because they themselves were the very fulfillment of that promise. Abraham, who could not have a child, God said to him, your descendants will will be more than the stars in the sky and more than the sand on the earth. And they were the remnants, the exile of that previous generation who was more numerous. And it was also pointing to the generations that would come through faith in Christ Jesus that really would outnumber the stars in the sky. That's you and that's me, joined together with him. Why did they hold on to Abraham? Because they knew that they were the offspring of Abraham and the promises over Abraham would be the promises over them. They were heirs of the promise. And we're told in the New Testament that we too, through faith in Christ, are heirs of that same promise. So we today are the actualization of that same promise. As they were standing before God and saying, God, we remember that you always keep your promises. They were pointing to us right now today saying, hey, look back at us. And then look back at Abraham and remember that God always keeps his promises. 
We are fulfillment of that prophecy too. They were heirs of the promise. Therefore, the promise was theirs. And the same faithful God who gave the promise was the same faithful God they were worshiping and returning to now. And they knew that he would keep his promises. The next one is the Lord is a miracle working God. Nehemiah 9 verse 9 to 12. I'm not going to read it. But what happens here is that they make reference to how God miraculously, powerfully led them out of Egypt where they were first slaves. Remember, they're slaves now and they're reflecting back on when they were first slaves and remembering how God delivered them with the 10 plagues, with the mighty parting of the Red Sea that they walked through on dry ground. Imagine that, dry ground. Ever seen a pool of water evaporate and seen how muddy it is for so long? But in God's power, it dries up so that they have a firm level footing to walk through. Some of you are facing opportunities at the moment and, and things, opposition at the moment, like there's this wall of water in front of you and God's about to split it. And not only is he about to split it in front of you, you're going to walk through on dry ground. There's not even going to be a smell or touch of water on you. There's not even going to be any mud or any sign to say that this is what you just went through. You're going to be like, oh my God, you are faithful. And you are a miraculous, powerful working God. I love how also he, they reference in this, in this chapter how God was a cloud by day and a fire, a pillar of fire by night. They're walking through the wilderness and through the desert, right? Deserts during the day are extremely hot. Not only did God protect them in his miraculous power from Pharaoh and the enemy and his armies, but God protected them from the elements. They didn't feel the heat of the sun because there was a cloud that was covering them. And at night when the desert got so cold, they had the fire above them to keep them warm and to guide them where they would go. The Lord is a miracle-working God. If you need a miracle this morning, turn to God. He is saying, he's saying I am a miracle-working God. And I want to end with this one. Number five, the Lord always provides. I'm just going to read a few verses to show how. Nehemiah 9 verse 15 in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock while they were disobeying God and rebelling against him. This is what God was doing. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. There was a lot of walking for 40 years, yet their shoes did not wear out, their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not get swollen. That is amazing. You gave them kingdoms and nations. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Imagine coming to a new nation and the house is full. There's vineyards that you did not plant. There's all sorts of things that you did not do and you walk in and it's all yours. What an inheritance. But still they turned from God even though God was so good to them. I want to end with a story, a few stories, just of God's provision. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're questioning if God's going to provide for you. I have many stories of God's provision. I remember growing up, my parents worked really hard, and my dad was an electrician, but we, we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, I remember growing up the one time, the one day, we just weren't making it through. And my dad, as an electrician, there was just wire everywhere, in the garage everywhere. So I remember going this one weekend, and our goal that weekend was to find all the excess wire, take it to the wheelbarrow, light it and set it on fire, and burn away the plastic, and then take the copper that remained, and to go sell the copper... <laughs> And use the money to get through the rest of the month. So I have, I have stories and accounts like that of, of God getting us through. It wasn't pretty all the time. It wasn't comfortable all the time. But you know what? The scripture in Psalm 37 verse 25. I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. I've never seen it. Although I've been in that position where, hey, are we, where's the food going to come from? And it always came. Maybe that's a similar story for you. Maybe you're facing something at the moment. You're like, will God provide? 
We've just come out, we're 11 months into this amazing promised land and promised people who we get to call our own and you, I suppose, get to call us your own as well. Isn't it awesome? But you know that for nine months we lived without a salary and God provided every moment for us. We lived without a salary because when we stepped out in faith, we, we thought that our visa was going to come in two months. So we stepped out in faith, resigned from the job, and said, here we come, Chicago. And then all of a sudden, God delayed, and God delayed, and God delayed, and God delayed. And we were like, oh, my gosh, what is going to happen? And every time we had need, someone would come. Even in the application for our visa to come here. In South Africa, where we were sitting down and praying about this, and finally the lawyer said, right, we can apply for the visa. I remember sitting and talking to Eloise, and we're like, okay, let's, let's get this money together. And we got this money together, but we were short. We were short in amount. But that very day that the visa application opened up, a friend came to me and gave me an envelope with some money in it. He said, I feel this is from an anonymous person, but this envelope is for you. And after all that we could do to pay for our visa, we were short. And guess how much we were short? The exact amount in that envelope. I remember doing a trip. This is my final story. And I hope this is inspiring you of God's provision, even though they're small stories. I remember being invited to do some ministry in the Netherlands at a church there, at a partnering church. And we were excited to go, and it was really expensive. Coming from South Africa, you don't realize how weak the South African rand is. Your dollar is king. The euro is awesome and powerful. It's like a game of chess, and all you've got is the pawns, and like everyone else is every other. Cool. And we're like, God, you've called us, we're going to go. So we adopted a pay and pray approach. Okay, God, we're going for this, but not knowing. And we get there, now we've got to live there. And we are getting looked after, but every time we like, pay for a coffee or every time, it's like more than a house. At least that's the way it felt. Like, I felt every time I bought a coffee, I was like, this is costing me more than my house. It, it wasn't, but that's how I felt. I would go pale inside. I would begin hyperventilating. I'm like, oh, Lord, I know you're going to do this. Then one day, my wife and I were out for lunch with this couple, and God promised me to pay for the lunch. And I'm like, why, God? You know where we are at financially. You know what's going on. This was the most expensive lunch I've ever paid for. It wasn't even that good. So I walk and I pay for it and I come back. My face is pale. My heart is beating. My legs are weak. And I'm like, oh, God, what are you doing to me? You're killing me. I can't do this. At the end of that trip, someone comes with an envelope. In that envelope is the exact amount of money that covered our visas, covered our tickets, and that lunch to the cents. Amazing. Now, why didn't God give me 10 times the amount in that? Of all the pain I went through and being obedient, I don't know. But I know that God provides everything we need. And I have more, more stories of God's provision, even since we've been here in the USA. God miraculously blessing us and providing our every need. I stand here as one and I can say, I was young and now I'm almost old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken all their children begging bread. I wonder if we can stand, please. And we're going to respond. And we're going to remember this morning that the God we come to is a God who is eternal and not limited by our limitations. We're going to remember that our God is the creator of all that there is. And even as I've shared some vulnerable stories that maybe, I don't know, I'm embarrassed to share them, we will know that they're actually pointing to a creator God who can take nothing and make something out of it, who can bring order out of our chaos. We remember that our God always keeps his promises. We remember that our God is a miracle-working God. And we remember that the Lord always provides. Can I pray for you? Right now, while all eyes are closed and heads are bowed. 
You may be here this morning and you've been hearing about this Jesus and perhaps you've thought about this Jesus as one who is far off and not wanting anything to do with you. But this morning you've heard that he wants to give you grace, which is everything you don't deserve. And he wants to give you mercy, which is not giving you everything you do deserve because he loves you. He wants to be gracious and compassionate to you and reveal his heart for you and his plan and purpose for you. And you realize that you have not yet put your faith in Christ. I'm, t- I'm talking now to those who have never made a commitment to Jesus. If that is you this morning, I would love to pray with you. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with. If you have never given your life to Jesus, and this morning you're saying, I want that relationship. I've been far from God. I've sinned. And I want to return to the King of all creation. If that's you, would you raise your hand while all eyes are closed? I would love to pray with you. Is there anyone? I'm going to go quickly through this. You may be even be too afraid to lift your hand. God sees your heart. If that's you, just say, God, that's me. God, that's me. I'm coming. I'm coming home. I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus. Even though I thought you hated me, I know that you love me now. Anyone? I'm going to extend that now to to those who maybe have known God and put their faith in God, but maybe have walked away from him, and they're saying, this morning, I'm coming home. If you've put your faith in Christ before, but you're saying, I need to make a declaration saying, Jesus, I'm coming. I'm turning back to you. If that's you, please raise your hand while all eyes are closed. If there's anyone... I'm putting up my hand. I'm putting up my hand. God, I'm returning. I'm returning to the first love. I'm putting first things first. I'm repenting before you and turning to you, God. Anyone else? Lord, I pray you would bless this amazing church. As they've sat through this heat, thank you, Lord. As they've sat through this heat and listened to stories of your grace and of your mercy and some weak examples of things that have shaped me, perhaps. I pray your blessing on them. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face smile upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City, all of Jesus for everyone.